we shall propose further cooperative efforts between all the nations in weather prediction and eventually in weather control. It lays the predicate and the foundation for the development of a weather satellite that will permit man to determine the world's cloud layer and ultimately to control the weather and he who controls the weather will control the world. He said, from space, the masters of infinity would have the power to control the Earth's weather, to cause drought and flood, to change the tides and raise the levels of the sea, to divert the Gulf Stream and change the temperature climates to frigid. Change temperate climates to frigid. Freeze stuff, melt stuff, divert stuff. Power. That's what these technologies are really about. Power. Hi, everybody. We have an incredible interview coming up today. And in my opinion, this is the definitive conversation on what we commonly call chemtrails. And this is a topic that I've been following for many years since um, late 1999, 2000, for sure. And really, honestly, I gave up on it because I couldn't see the solutions and I didn't see any reason to continue depressing people any longer. And so I gave up on it for quite a few years. And then Jim Lee comes to my attention. Actually, Zeus was doing some research on the topic and came across Jim Lee's work and said, hey, Regina, you've got to take a look at this. This broadens the subject so vastly that I'm going to tell you right up front, we cannot get uh, all of this information in in an hour. But I'm really encouraging you to go to Jim's site, which I'll provide for you, and also support his work because I consider this to be some of the most important work by truly any truth warrior out there in the world today. So without further ado, let's go to Jim. Hi, Jim. <laughs> well, Thank you for having me. And wow, my, I I'm, hope I'm not blushing too strongly. <laughs> well, you know what? Um, I meant everything I said. This is a topic I became, like I said, I became frustrated with it. And I was, I was back there doing my due diligence in 2000, 2001. I was calling the uh, meteorological service in the service in the morning i was calling the airports the faa taking pictures looking at contrails and chemtrails seemingly side by side i did this for quite a while finally ended up at a dead end when i called the faa and the western division their pio their public information officer and said look is the reason i can't get any information on these these flights flying over my head because they're military and he said, yes. And so I thought, okay, well, there was nothing I could do from that point. So we all go on, make documentaries and talk, but no one really has looked at it as deeply as you have and supplied the information you have, which is to me astounding. I would like everyone to see your videos and your work. So let's launch into why you started following this topic about 10 years ago, before we go to a clip of you addressing the EPA that takes some initiative and some courage to sit before them and say, look, you're talking about greenhouse gas. Look up a little further, guys. Okay. How did you start this? Well, originally, I, I had fallen for a lot of the fear porn um, that's associated with the topic. And, you know, um, for me, it's kind of backwards because originally I began by debating 
actual geoengineers, namely Ken Caldera, David Keith, um, Stephen Salter, John Latham, um, you know, the academia of the geoengineering scientist world. And um, <clears throat> basically, they, uh, they have a Google uh, geoengineering group. And I had found a uh, congressional testimony. It was four, um, three separate uh, congressional testimony days and one in the UK Parliament um, from 2010. I put them up on my YouTube channel. And somebody came to me and said, oh, my God, the geoengineers are talking about you. And I'm like, what? Um, and I saw the group. I, you know, I basically applied to you know, be a member. And one of the individuals in there had a lengthy post about me and they said he is very apt to be, um, you know, anti-geoengineering and influential. He has a very big site. And uh, with that, I, you know, was, uh, you know, allowed you know, entrance into their geoengineering debate group or isn't so much a debate group. It's mainly, you know, like a, a echo chamber for climate <laughs> scientists and, um, you know, I, I, I bided my time and, and, you know, read some posts before making my initial post. And my initial post to them was, you know, where I laid out the history of weather modification and how it relates to what they're talking about with geoengineering. And it basically the simple idea is this. I believe they are trying to circumvent international laws on weather modification by calling it something else. And that cloud seeding, which was invented in 1946 by Vincent Schaefer, Irving Langmuir, and Bernard Vonnegut at the General Electric Laboratories, um, it was invented in 1946. And to this day, they have not been able to prove the scientific efficacy of cloud seeding. So if you can't say that you're going to modify the rain and then prove that your results are going to be X, Y, or Z, then it's not scientifically efficable. And similarly, how could you ever claim that you know what the results of doing a global weather modification experiment, which is what geoengineering would do? Geoengineering is the idea that we could, um, at least solar geoengineering, as they're calling it lately, um, is the idea that we can mimic volcanoes to cool the planet rapidly by injecting massive amounts of sulfur um, into the stratosphere. Sulfur is the main idea, um, but you know there have been many others put forward, such as aluminum, titanium dioxide, uh, calcium, and even diamond dust. So. These ide the idea is to create a artificial sunscreen, um, which, you know, is going to have many health ramifications. It's going to change rainfall patterns worldwide. Um, you know, there are moral implications for who actually controls the thermostat. Um, and, you know, I got into all of these ideas and basically went to them and said, you know, if you haven't been able to prove cloud seeding works in 60 years, how do you plan on ge doing geoengineering in the next hundred years? Um, 
you know, it's just not a, it's not going to be possible. And of course, you know, they came back with an argument from authority. Who are you to speak to us? PhD holding mathematicians who play with computer models. And I'm like, well, I've played with computer models myself. And I happen to know that they are only as good as what you put into them. And, you know, these, these models are, you know, deeply flawed. I, I did video game modeling. I did, um, 3D graphics uh, modeling for video. Um, and, you know, cr simulating reality is one thing. But then making the claims that, you know, we're all going to die in 100 years. And lately, the, the claim is we're all going to die in 12 years. If we don't do something about global warming, that's, you know, and, uh, you know, the boogeyman argument for geoengineering is that, well, people aren't going to clean up their act. So, um, why don't we do geoengineering and spray the sky in a sunscreen and that will, you know, save us all from, um, global warming. And that's how I got into this. So the interesting part about it for me is that many people were, you know, referring to chemtrails, you know, like every time I would talk about the history of weather modification or, you know, what these geoengineers are proposing, that they would immediately go to a geoengineering is already happening and B um, you know, this is all secret. And, you know, I found both to be straw man arguments. And for me, you know, initially, you know, I was one of those people, you know, taking videos of every plane flying over my house and tracking them down. Yep. And I realized very quickly that, Yes, a lot of them were military, but unlike most of the public, um, I come from the hacker world and I have access to things that most people don't. So I you know, was able to track down which military flights were going over my house. I love that you took the time to do that because I was among the uh, not techno savvy, non-hacker world. And I just finally said, what are we going to do about it? They're not going to stop. And I bought the story hook, line, and sinker, too. Um, as, and, and admittedly, I'm a dilettante. I cover a lot of different topics. That was one I was passionate about, but one of many, many topics. So I definitely didn't go down the rabbit hole you did. And I find it just amazing that you hacked your way into this data, more or less. Well, I mean, honestly, you know, I have quite a rapport with many other, you know, what we would call hacktivists. And, you know, um, the EPA hearing is a great example of that. Um, what happened was the EPA didn't even announce anything about this hearing on their website. They had a .txt, a text file on a FTP server, a file transfer protocol server, um, buried in there. <laughs> and one of my friends sent it to me and said, Jim, um, have you seen this? And the minute I saw it, um, it basically read like this. If you believe that aircraft emissions are endangering public health, um, you know, you can feel free to request a hearing or write in and submit your, you know, your written um, oral, you know, presentation. And I basically wrote in to the email address and said, I would like to request a hearing. And at that point, I was contacted by Lucy Audette, senior po policy analyst from the EPA, 
who tried to talk me out of having a hearing. She's like, well, you know that the, you know, if you send me an email, um, your, your written testimony is just as good as oral testimony. And I was like, mm, I think we'll pass on that. Um, I love it. And I recorded that entire conversation. It's on my YouTube channel. You can find it by going to YouTube and searching for Jim Lee climate viewer, climate viewer, all one word. Um, and you'll see the, the video. It's also on my, my page about chemtrails, uh, which is climateviewer.com slash Cirrus Clouds Matter. And that's C-I-R-R-U-S, Cirrus Clouds Matter. And yes, I'm playing off the Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter. <laughs> of Cirrus Clouds Matter because at the end of the day, um, my argument to the EPA was, even in the climate science world, um, there are two major statements out there. Uh, and one of which what happened right after 9-11 um, when they grounded all the flights in America. And what they realized was while the skies were flightless, um, the daily temperature range or what they call the diurnal temperature range, it widened greatly. So what, what happened was on during the day, it's normally warm. During the night, it's cool. But during the days when it was cloudless, it got cooler at night. And this was a red flag to all these climate junkies. And they said, wait a minute. Well, the clouds obviously had an effect on that. The second major event happened in 2008 when the Iceland um, volcano went off and they grounded flights again. And they actually observed an E3 AWACS, which is a flying radar military plane. It's the one with the big UFO saucer looking disc on the back of it, um, above it. And it was doing circles around um, the UK and basically by itself created enough contrail cirrus clouds to cover almost all of the UK. And that prompted statements like, a single aircraft operating condition, conditions favorable for persistent contrail formation seemed to exert a radiative forcing some 5,000 times greater than the estimates of CO2 based on the entire aviation fleet. And the other quote being that, um, you know, basically contrail cirrus is uh, having a greater effect on the heating of the planet than um, CO2 has since the start of aviation. And when yes. you put those two quotes together, mm. you, you have a, a very big, if not um, smoking gun, um, you know, evidentiary statement, you have a big what if hole in your climate science models. I agree with you. And this has been a thing. Um, people arguing about uh, carbon emissions control, right? And greenhouse uh, gases and warming, global warming. I've been saying this also for many years. You cannot talk about this topic unless you address the other, which you're doing full on. Do you mind if we take just a moment? Uh, and I'm sorry, to, I'm sorry to interrupt you there. And just take a little look at um, the summary you did at the EPA meeting. I'm going to suggest that people listen to the entire thing later. They'll go onto your site and start following the links. But can we just drop into that for a moment here? Certainly. 
If the EPA complies with the spirit of the Clean Air Act, they will protect us from metal aerosols attributed to Alzheimer's, autism, cancer, and a plethora of other debilitating illnesses. If the EPA is truly concerned about aviation-induced climate change, they will regulate the production of contrails and cirrus clouds, which change our climate to a much greater extent than the sum of the six greenhouse gases named in this proposal. Regulating heavy metals and aviation-induced cloudiness will be meaningless without proper verification. Even though ICAO members sign a binding agreement to only use certain chemicals in their gas tanks, we all know agreements and regulations are useless without proper verification. Therefore, I request mandatory, random testing of jet exhaust be immediately implemented. Jim, it's amazing that you actually got in there, that you refused uh, to be discouraged by the person you were speaking with, I've forgotten her name now, uh, in terms of written testimony only. So you had your say. What happened after that? Let's just talk about that for a moment and then kind of pick up on where you were. So um, as a result, you know, uh, obviously I didn't expect to be in a room full of C-SPAN cameras. Um, I thought this was kind of going to be a you know, little private conversation. Um, so I walked in, had a mild heart attack, um, <laughs> did a lot of praying, and then grabbed my sheet and did my thing. And I was, um, because, you know, this is, there, there are many points of view on this subject. And, you know, I didn't want mine to be the only one there. I invited four of my friends from the chemtrail community who hold, um, let's just say, a little more controversial opinions on the topic. So there were five versions of the story told there. Mine, you know, being sticking to the scientific references talking about what I consider to be the real world ramifications of planes making clouds every day. Um, and most importantly, how can we ever get to a place where we're on renewable energies such as solar power when fossil fuel driven planes are creating clouds and guaranteeing that that solar power won't work? Absolutely. So, that's a major problem. Um, BBC article, um, terrestrial astronomy will be extinct by 2050 because basically there will be so many clouds in the sky, telescopes on the ground will be useless. You know, um, that's to me, that's really alarming because if nothing else, if we're not going to take our health into consideration and the development of alternative technologies, just stop and think for a moment, everybody, about the notion that we will be cut off from exploration beyond our own near atmosphere. Now that should, that should kind of put the fear of Jesus into everybody. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's what I like to call the Venus effect. Um, the planet Venus is covered in, you know, sulfur dioxide clouds. Um, and, you know, it's a permanent greenhouse effect. And what we're doing right now at 100,000 plus flights a day is we're putting all of these nanoparticles into the stratosphere. The higher they are in elevation, the longer they persist. So what's happened over the last 60 years of, you know, commercial flight and military flights and rockets um, is that we've been putting so much particulate matter up there already that um, one guy, Oscar Escobar, made the claim that we've already put more 
sulfur dioxide and sulfuric acid into the stratosphere than even geoengineer David Keith called for in the next 20 years. We're already doing that. So that leads us to the question, are we currently geoengineering, which is what everybody talks about. Well, Chuck Long from NOAA, um, Earth Systems Research Lab, said exactly that, except they call it accidental geoengineering. So in the scientific world, there is no legal geoengineering, and that's why you're always going to hit a brick wall with these people because you know they won't accept the fact that pollution is geoengineering. Geoengineering is only our definition, and our definition is, you know, UN sanctioned worldwide government. You know, we have a governance um, system in place, um, and you know, it's a program paid for by the government, yada, yada, yada. Um, and anything that comes from aircraft or ships, which are ship tracks, um, that's accidental geoengineering, purely accidental. They say things like pollution has caused the global warming pause. Or as Chuck Long put it, um, commercial aviation is creating a sub-visual ice haze which is whitening the sky. And he's not even referring to the clouds coming out of the plane. He's referring to the sky as a whole whitening. And, and that's because of the buildup of ice on these nanoparticles, which are high in the atmosphere. And anybody can see this. If you actually are lucky enough, and I'm in Sumter, South Carolina, so I'm pretty lucky um, to have blue cloudless days even on those blue cloudless days, you can see a very milky haze on the horizon. Usually you can see the milky haze over top, uh, um, directly above you. And that milky haze is the mixture of all of the chemicals that are dumped into this, you know, the stratosphere at the top of the troposphere. We live in the troposphere. Um, the, the area in between is called the tropopause. That's where the highest flying commercial flights fly. And then military planes can fly into the stratosphere. So what happens is we have all, basically um, the Indian Space Organization last year said that they found soot from commercial aviation at 18 kilometers in the sky. Mm. This is past the ozone layer. Mm -hmm. So the soot from planes carries metals and these metals end up traveling upwards and they're wrapped in sulfur. So they had basically when you burn the fuel, you have soot and carbon black dust, black carbon dust um, come out of the plane loaded with metals covered in sulfuric acid and sulfur dioxide. All of this is ending up in the stratosphere. So they are geoengineering they just won't take responsibility for saying that it is a program. It is an official thing. They just want to call it accidental geoengineering. And similarly with ship tracks, um, it's the same idea. They use dirty fuel. It's called bunker fuel and it is very high in sulfur. So the Smithsonian mag um, magazine ag, um, article on the chemtrail subject basically said aircraft contrails may be causing accidental geoengineering. 
And the MIT Technology Review article was talking about ShipTrack said, we're about to stop a massive accidental experiment in cooling the planet because the UN is setting out rules to ban the use of bunker fuel. And it is my personal belief that when you start advocating for the use of these dirty fuels loaded with sulfur because they cool the planet, it's no longer just pollution. It's no longer accidental geoengineering. You're trying to get a specific outcome. So you are actually doing an experiment at this point. And that is what I see going on is that they are actively trying to change the exhaust coming from ships and airplanes to cool the planet. Yes. Okay. So this is uh, the time in the conversation where I'd love to get really linear with you because you talk about the four different types of aerosolization of space and chemtrails is one of them. And I have to say, as much as you speak about fear porn around the topic, you know, which is true, people get addicted uh, just like porn to fear. Um, the reality is that when you start putting all of this information together, the reflection we're getting is actually almost scarier than just the subject of chemtrails alone. And I don't mean that to put fear into people because we're going to talk about how we can ameliorate some of these effects and what you're doing proactively and what we can do at the end. So let's go into the four different kinds that you break down of means of these chemicals dumping into the various levels of our atmosphere. One, two, three, and four, just boom, boom, boom. Okay, so yeah, and I agree with you. Truth is scarier than fiction. Um, and, and the scariest part for me, the aha moment for me, was when on my other website, weathermodificationhistory.com, you could actually go into a timeline that starts in the 1800s and goes all the way to present and see everything that's happened in between. And what you realize is nobody's taught this stuff. Um, we've interviewed meteorologists. They, they either, you know, are completely ignorant or are feigning ignorance of, you know, any of this material. But what I see as the four types of chemtrails or chemical trails, which is what the condensed version of the word is, it's about dumping chemicals in the atmosphere. And, you know, whether people want to assign depopulation agendas or whatever to it, I don't, I don't try to read minds. I don't try to make statements I can't back up with facts. I focus on the mechanisms. And the four mechanisms that I see for chemtrails are this. Obviously, commercial aviation. That is predominantly, if not 100%, from jet fuel. Um, I've seen every single tank pump bottle picture photo that's ever been put out on any chemtrail meme. And I have been able to track down where that original photo came from and see how it was twisted to benefit a narrative. Most of them are flame retardants, um, you know, uh, dispersals for, you know, putting out forest fires, um, oil spill um, bottles, you know, where like the BP oil spill where they were spraying chemicals from a C-130 to melt that stuff down. Um, things like that ballast tanks. Ballast tanks are, are tanks that they put in a plane when they're testing it. 
and they rapidly move water around the vehicle to see if they can throw it off balance. And, and you know, they this is standard procedure, but you go to some of the most popular geoengineering or chemtrail websites and they use these photos again and again. But if you actually look at the scientific literature from not just the geoengineers, but I've interviewed people from the FAA, it all goes back to jet fuel. They're currently doing two tests. Um, one's already completed, one's ongoing right now, which is called the Access Flight, and the other one's called ND-MAX. And they're testing biofuels for contrail control. So it, all of this revolves around using jet fuel and existing infrastructure to deploy chemicals. Let's talk about those chemicals for a moment, because I think the ones people are most commonly um, exposed to would be uh, aluminum, probably aluminum, barium, and strontium as the primary constituents that have known health effects. So let's, I know you've done a chart on it, which um, I did in another little video I did called Poisons in the Skies, but we'll just kind of toss that in right now. And this is um, showing us what the constituents of commercial jet fuel are. And mm -hmm. talk about this and some of the elements of it that we, that are also toxic to the health that we may not have been informed of um, to this point. Yeah, so um, basically that comes from a military document um, from DTIC.mil, and it breaks down the different, you know, uh, what they call spectroscopy. They actually go in and find what elements are in, um, you know, a certain liquid, you know, solid, whatever. And what they found was that in JP5, there were 3,000 parts per billion of aluminum. In JP8, there were 9,000 parts per billion of aluminum. Um, barium was minuscule, 35 parts per billion in JP5, 135 in um, JP8. The reason this is significant is because NATO, um, which is you know a worldwide entity, decided to change from gasoline-based fuel to diesel-based fuel, kerosene. And when they did that, that's when this change occurred. So suddenly we went from having 3,000 parts per billion uh, in the jet fuel to 9,000 parts per billion of aluminum. That, you know, had significant effects on engine performance. Uh, my father-in-law was a chief, my master sergeant, working out off at Air Force Base. He was a corrosion expert, worked on jet fuel systems. And after I had done all of my research on this, I said, oh, wait a minute, I should ask him. And I you know, ran the idea by him about the NATO single fuel concept and how they changed. And he says, Jim, you would not believe the problems we had. We had fuel filters that were clogging up it was destroying, um, you know, the engines from the inside. Black belch, which is excessive soot production, um, which was a thing of the past, had come back. Um, they, they had to redesign many of the engines to even get it to work with this new jet fuel. So it became a major issue very quickly. Um, and uh, basically... From 1988 to 1996, they did this conversion, 
And it was completed in 1996 and 1997 was the first time the word chemtrails was ever used on the internet. The very first article about chemtrails ever written where the word chemtrail was written was about JP eight jet fuel. So I, I, I don't see this as a you know coincidence. Um, but let me break this one down for you real quick. I want to make sure I, I, I get this correct. All right. So there was also um, a, a, uh, another paper I have, and it's a chemical characterization of freshly emitted particulate matter from aircraft exhaust using a single particle mass spectrometry. This is from 2016. Here are all the metals that they found coming out of the back of airplanes. This is by Ulrich Lohmann and a bunch of other individuals um, from the DLR in Germany. Um, abundant, chromium, iron, molybdenum, sodium, calcium, aluminum, also detected, vanadium, barium, cobalt, copper, nickel, lead, magnesium, manganese, silicon, titanium, zirconium. So, Jet fuel is loaded with metals to begin with. And as it's burnt, depending on the, the flash point of these metals, some of them come straight out the tail end. I mean, they're just coming out in nanoparticle size. And, you know, it says the detected metallic compounds were all internally mixed with soot particles, meaning that these metals are inside the soot coming out of the back of the plane. Soot makes a, what's in the weather modification world, they call it a cloud condensation nuclei or a CCN or a cloud seed. So what do you need to make a cloud? Three things, some kind of dust, water vapor, and some kind of static. And, and the static can be in the form of chemi-ions, which is, a really fancy word for the you know static generated inside the engine to galactic cosmic rays, which are the main driver of cloud formation on the entire planet. So, you know, electricity from space. And right now we're in a solar minimum. So during a solar minimum, we actually have a weakened ionosphere. And that means that more galactic cosmic rays can penetrate the atmosphere, which means more clouds. It's a 13-year cycle to the, the, to the solar minimums and maximums. And during solar minimums, we will have more clouds. So right now, we're in a period where you should see way more clouds than normal. Um, okay, quick question in here. As you're explaining all of that, you, when I heard you talk about the three factors, I didn't hear you say anything about metals. Where do these metals factor in? The metals are part of the dust. So okay. uh, aluminum, the, gotcha. the, the, the majority of cloud seeds on the planet tend to be um, elemental metals. Um, you know, aluminum is a really big one because it works as a heat sink. Um, that's why we use it in computers. That's why we use it in, you know, radiators and things like that, because it transfers heat rapidly. So aluminum works to cool the water vapor and turn it into ice. And that's what clouds are predominantly made of. They're made of little ice crystals. So 
the, the the aluminum, um, the soot, you know, is loaded with all of these metals. Um, Ulrich Lohman and her team also flew into these chemtrails, you know, flew into these what they call uh, contrail-induced cirrus clouds or aviation-induced cloudiness, or I could go on with the entire list. It's, it's kind of ridiculous, um, all of the different things they use to call them. Um, you know, aviation-induced cirrus, contrail-induced cloudiness, um, contrail cirrus. I call them artificial clouds because <laughs> that that takes all of the, yeah. the fancy out of it. They are artificial clouds. So she she said they had data flying into them, and so we're still on number one, which is commercial aviation effects yeah. um, in terms of their fuel. So what happened when they flew into them? And then let's go to the second form of chemtrails. They found that 75% of the cloud seeds and cirrus clouds were man-made metals. Yeah. There you go. Okay. So, I mean, that's, and I, that was in my EPA hearing statement as well. You know, that, you know, at the end of the day, you guys are focused on greenhouse gases. You should be focused on cloud creation and, you know, these metals and toxic chemicals that are put in with additives um, that have more effect on human health than green, all of the greenhouse gases you mentioned ever will. Yes, so, and we're going to talk about that. You yourself had some health issues, but we're going to talk yeah. about that toward the end of the interview. Um, Dr. Klinghart, who I mentioned in that other little interview, gives some solutions, but basically he said, in, certainly among his American clients, uh, virtually 100% of them have aluminum, aluminum toxicity. We've all been exposed to this for a very long period of time, and it has severe consequences. I look at it as what's an upcoming epidemic of dementia in the future, for one. So let's go to chemtrail number two, and we'll work our way uh, as, as kind of efficiently as we can toward the yeah. health part of this. So, so let's, I send the, everyone to you. let's do the flip side devil's advocate arg argument. So, of course, if you put a video on YouTube and you have the word chemtrail in it, you'll get the Wikipedia link to contrail. Um, because, you know, obviously you're lying just by using that word. But let's let's say, for instance, that there is a, a secret agenda. There is some secret program. Well, of course, there's a secret programs. There always have been. There always will be. Um, I have an article on climateviewer.com called It Was a Conspiracy, Military Experiments on Unsuspecting Public. And during the 50s through 60s, they had what was called the Manhattan-Rochester Coalition. It was a, a spinoff of the Manhattan Project, where the U.S. Army Chemical Corps was releasing chemicals to simulate nuclear explosions in America and see where those you know, chemicals would end up. So they got the bright idea to go release zinc, cadmium, um, sulfide into populated areas and you know then it gets nefarious they then track those people for their lifetime and when they died ground up their thyroids and stuff to see how much of this they had ingested hmm. um, this happened you know o over 60 years ago we didn't find out about this till you know just recently in the last five years so the point being 
if it happened in the past and it took 60 to 70 years for us to find out about it, they typically wait till everybody who is involved in a secret program is dead before they tell you about it. So sitting on your hands or, you know, complaining online about the secret government program going on over your head means that you're never going to get anything done about it. So I try to be pragmatic and focus on what I can do about it. Um, that, that's the most important point I'd like to make about it. But yes, is there, is there the possibility that secret government programs are going on? Obviously there is, or the CIA would not have called Dr. Alan Robach, who was a geoengineering scientist. And what he said, what the two CIA guys said on the phone was, if another country were modifying the weather over America, would we know it? And he responded to the CIA guys, well, I'd like to think that we would be able to, because if you disperse enough chemicals in the atmosphere, we should be able to detect them. Um, And then he went on to say, but at the same time, I got the feeling that they were also, in fact, asking if we were to modify the weather over another country, would they be able to? Yes. So the answer was actually no. And Alan should have said no. Um, But at the time he said, I'd like to think we could. Well, following um, that interview, which was around, let's say, October, in January of the next year at the Weather Modification Conference, they have them every two years at the American Meteorological Society. I attended the last one um, last year in January, and I interviewed a lot of these scientists. And at that, um, that um, you know, the, the one before the one I went to, uh, a, a lady named Diane Seidel did a paper on just that fact. Could we detect what we call rogue geoengineering? And the answer was no. And the answer was given because we cannot tell the difference between man-made clouds and God-made clouds. And that is a serious problem. So there is not a single person on this planet that can look you dead in the eye and with certainty tell you that there isn't a secret program going on. You know, it's by their own admission, by the CIA and by the scientists. They all admit we can't tell the difference between nature and warfare. Okay, quick question on that. So when we look up at the big fluffy cirrus clouds or look down if you're flying, that's one type of cloud that we normally do not associate with what is called chemtrails. We tend to look at those kind of um, large trails, remnants of the trails that puff up and then you have an obscured sky during the day. That's what most of us who follow the chemtrail story think of as the type of cloud, even the little zipper patterns on them and such. But we don't think of cirrus clouds, for example, as something... Uh, I think you're referring to cumulus clouds. I mean, cumulus clouds as... Cumulus, yes. As what is uh, what can also be inspired through chemical engineering. So can you talk about that a little bit so we know when we look up in the sky kind of what we're even looking at now, because now it's very confusing. It used to seem kind of obvious if you're following just the chemtrail story. Yeah. So at the end of the day, even the IPCC in their articles 
um, when they try to account for the damage done by airline industry, um, they have a big star on their chart at the bottom. And it says, once a linear contrail has evolved into a cirrus cloud, mm -hmm. it is no longer counted as being attributable to aviation. So isn't that once it once it basically spreads out and appears to be just a normal cloud cover, it's no longer counted. Exactly. And that's that's why they really have no they or at least they claim they have no understanding of what the damages um, to the planet that these airlines are doing a because they need these planes to fly to their stupid conferences and b um, they can't tell the difference between whether a plane made that cirrus cloud or whether it naturally formed and that's that's the main problem with climate science today is that they want to focus on greenhouse gases which are down here but in the grand scheme of things it's the sun, so, you know, the sun cycle, galactic cosmic rays, cloud formation, water vapor, and then greenhouse gases. And the, the four I mentioned above are not accounted for properly in any climate science model on the planet. So this is the main crux of my argument. Don't blame climate change, blame the climate changers. Oh, and the yes. climate changers are the people who have been modifying the weather for well over a hundred years, and nobody knows the first thing about it. Um, real quick example: 2008, the Department of Homeland Security held a hurricane modification workshop. So, it, you know, this is how you know, in your face it is. You know, yeah. you'll turn on the news, and they'll say well, don't you know that all of the latest hurricanes are getting worse because of climate change and not for <laughs> one second mention that, you know, people have been experimenting on hurricanes since Project Cirrus, Project Scud. Cirrus was in 1948. Project Cirrus was literally 11 months after they invented cloud seeding. And they went and they sprinkled some chemicals on a tropical storm it turned into a hurricane and slammed into Georgia. It changed directions. It was headed out to sea, changed colors and directions, and slammed into Georgia, killing one person and doing $3.2 million in damages. And they've done many hurricane modification projects since, Project Storm Fury being the most popular. Um, it was held during the 60s and 70s. And now we're here today revisiting all of this because of Bill Gates and company who got a bunch of patents together with Nathan Mervold, the patent troll, held a congressional hearing called Weathering the Storm, a need for a national hurricane initiative, and then went to the Weather Modification Conference and had a special session called New Legal Ramifications for Weather Modification. Because, you know, as I stated to Ken Caldera and company, because Ken Caldera, the geoengineer, has a patent with Bill Gates' name on it for steering hurricanes, I said to him, when you steer a hurricane away from an oil refinery and it hits a predominantly poor black neighborhood, you just killed people. Climate change didn't kill people. Hurricanes didn't kill people. You killed people. So these are the kinds of things that people don't understand about the world of weather modification. All people want to say is, look up, and, you know, pray. <laughs>
You know, it's the end of the world as we know it. And it's just nothing but fear porn. But the more you know about this, the more you're able to, you know, be in the discussion, to, to speak to the scientists clearly and say enough is enough. We need complete transparency at this point. I agree with you 100 percent. And I want to go on there. There, We're only going to touch the tip of the tip of the iceberg today. So clearly. just understand that <laughs> clearly. Um, but there are a couple of areas I'd like to get in. Uh, people can go to your site to delve into every one of the things we've talked about. It's very, very rich with research. But one of them is uh, you were talking about steering hurricanes. Another that we um, had discussed off camera was also being able to manipulate where static or lightning occurs. And I said, well, why would they have any interest in um, where lightning strikes? And you went on to tell me because they need to avoid very specific locations and facilities. So if you'll tap into that for a moment, and then I want to go to HARP. You have done an amazing model of where HARP is where these arrays are all over the planet. It's not just in Alaska. It's all over the place. And talk about how um, heating of the ionosphere and HARP interfaces with chemtrails in, in a little bit. But first, let's go to driving lightning in or out of an area. Okay, so there, there's a paper um, on climateviewer.com called Protecting Critical Infrastructure with the Use of Directed Energy Weapons. And um, basically, the idea is this. It's called channeled lightning. And uh, originally, they would do this during certain rocket launches. Um, what they would do is basically have a rocket on a wire. And they would fire the rocket into a thunderstorm. And the, it had a trailing wire on it. They do this at the University of Florida. And basically, it works as a lightning rod. You know, the lightning will follow the path of least resistance. So by firing the rocket into the thundercloud, um, they could actually get a lightning bolt to strike that, you know, wire and follow it to the ground. So this was, um, you know, it's still in use today, but they've now moved on to using lasers for what they call lightning mitigation or lightning avoidance. Um, I have papers on weathermodificationhistory.com dating back to 1957, I believe it was, with Project Skyfire, where they talked about using cloud seeding um, for the prevention of forest fires through uh, lightning mitigation. Um, I also have numerous articles um, and newspaper articles and scientific references on using chaff, military chaff, um, to bust up, uh, you know, lightning clouds to prevent um, lightning um, strikes on critical infrastructure. So what do they mean by critical infrastructure? Places like nuclear waste storage facilities, biological weapon facilities, um, you know, like Hanford nuclear site, things like that. Uh, the waste isolation pilot program, um, WIP. Um, you know, there, there are many sites around America which are of high value um, and, you know, they don't want lightning striking it. Well, now I'm going to throw you a little conspiracy element to this. What if instead of firing a laser from the ground, you fired one from space? or from a plane, 
Well, the same would be true. Um, if you can direct lightning from the ground with a laser, then you could certainly uh, put a laser above the cloud mm -hmm. and that would be a, a lightning rod from heaven, right. you know, so to speak. So we're, when Trump talks about a space force, that's what he's talking about, space. It's where it's at. I've read so many um, articles and, and, and research papers on the use of directed energy weapons from space. And we're, you know, there's another paper called Operational Weather Control in 2030, where they literally talk about diamond-plated balloons that produce um, chemtrails, produce very um, thick cirrus cloud formations to protect against satellite surveillance and directed energy weapons from space. So there's another reason why, and I have military FOIA documents, three of which from different dates, where they specifically say that we want to create cirrus clouds, the military, to create cirrus clouds to protect um, against satellite surveillance and to improve nighttime operations. So if we were to go to Iran, they would completely blanket the sky in clouds, put on their night vision goggles, and suddenly the, 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 the enemy is at a disadvantage because it's darker at night. So, you know, there are many reasons why the military would be involved in such a thing. And the lightning control issue comes up because there's also a paper that says lightning is more prevalent in areas where high shipping traffic occurs. And there's been a lot of research on this recently. So what I'm seeing is that there are there have been numerous reports in local media about chaff showing up on radar. You showed one in your Poisoning the Sky video. Yes. And um, there has to be some kind of correlation to because they're not up there trying to block, you know, anti-aircraft missiles over Kansas. Okay. Right. Right. So why are they dumping chaff over Kansas? You know, you know, Central America, the central states of the United States of America. Um, and one of those reasons has to be, you know, this this idea that's been floated for so long that chaff can be used to disrupt um, thunderstorms. So that's lightning control in a nutshell. Um, laser beams, triggered uh, launches with wires and chaff. You also brought up a moment ago satellites, and we're not going to have time to get into it, but you say satellites also have the capability of carrying these chemicals and can be commanded to release them at certain points. So we even have, it's, I mean, it's so ubiquitous. So that's yeah. interesting. So that's where HARP ties into all of this stuff. So the ionospheric heaters and sounding rockets. Um, if you've never heard of a sounding rocket, I like to call them chemtrails from space. Um, I actually did a series of videos on this on my YouTube channel. Um, it's Jim Lee, uh, Climate Viewer on YouTube. And you can see a playlist called Chemtrails from Space. And basically these are Black Brant sounding rockets you can look them up um since i've started doing this nasa now has an entire sounding rocket page where they literally talk about it in public we release trimethyl aluminum tma barium strontium 
and lithium. Those are the four main chemicals they list on their page. But you, you told me there's also somewhere in this mix cesium-137. In, in older documents that I've been able to, that are on weathermodificationhistory.com, if you go to the chemtrails from space um, tag, it's on the side of any page, um, what you'll see is they not only use sounding rockets, but they use cannons. And they would literally fire cannons from the ground with shells and explode them in space. And some of the payloads I saw included cesium-137, which is a radioactive element. Um, there are many more chemicals than we've listed you know, just now. But basically, they've been dumping chem chemicals in the upper atmosphere since 1953. And that's about the time the limited test ban treaty happened. About the time they banned upper atmospheric nuclear explosions, they switched over to using sounding rockets. And what they do is they, they produce a tracer because upper atmospheric winds and the magnetic field lines of the Van Allen belts, all these things are invisible. So by putting a metal tracer into that medium, they can then hit it with radars like Super Darn. Super Darn is a super dual auroral radar network. Um, or hit it with ionospheric heaters like HARP or the, the ionospheric heater in Tromso, Norway. Um, the one that's in Arecibo, Puerto Rico. The one that's in Jicamarca, Peru. Um, they have these all over the planet. And the idea is, you know, with HARP, they have the Poker Flat Research Range, which is just north of HARP. They fire a sounding rocket up into the aurora, and then they microwave it. And that allows them to take 3D stereographic images because they use multiple radars from different angles to, you know, see which way the wind's blowing, what speed. Um, and it also allows them to modify space weather and this is one of the most controversial topics to date is the link between space weather and terrestrial weather and you know many would especially meteorologists they'll just go there's no link whatsoever but every single year especially in the last three there have been more and more groundbreaking papers talking about the link between what happens in the electrical upper atmosphere and how that affects weather on the ground. And, you know, of course, the, the conspiracy, you know, YouTube uh, money-making machine would have you believe that HARP can steer the jet stream when it's way more complicated than that. Um, HARP does not have the power to, to steer the jet stream. We don't have the, the ability to control any weather anywhere. Everything they do is an experiment. It's kind of like this. If you had a stream and it was, let's say, two feet wide, a foot deep, and you took a rock the size of a basketball and you stuck it in the center of that stream, the stream would continue, but it would divert around the rock. So you've made a change in the system, the results of which are completely unknown. 
And that is the case with cloud seeding. That is the case with, you know, lightning abation, hurricane modification, um, space weather modification, and especially with what they're proposing with geoengineering results unknown. So the, the idea that they have control of anything is, is laughable. It's hubris. Um, you, we don't control anything, even though they've been trying for well over a hundred years. So they really need to, to, to be transparent about what they're doing because I've seen many cases, court cases, where individuals sued cloud seeding companies for damage to their farms, um, to their livestock, things like that. And, you know, we're at a situation where very few people know this is going on. And if people saw the big picture, they'd be more likely to push back on the idea that you hear on the mainstream, lamestream, me legacy media um, that climate change is to blame for all the freaky weather we're having. Right. You know, you have to understand that, um, and the great a great place to start is on climateviewer.com. And the article is called 10 Technologies to Own the Weather Today. Yeah, beautifully done. I just want to compliment you on that. Thank you. And I did an infographic with that that shows you where these affect what parts of the atmosphere. They're all labeled in order and what they do. And when you understand that all of these technologies exist, that the CIA is literally calling a geoengineering scientist to say, if some other country was modifying our weather, would we know it? When the Brigadier General of Iran is accusing Israel of stealing its clouds and it hits 156 degrees in Iran, um, we have a serious problem. And the problem is this, that in 1978, they banned weather warfare because Henry Kissinger, the CIA, U.S. Air Force, and U.S. Navy, all of 19 individuals and only five planes did weather warfare over Vietnam and Laos. Yes. And it came out as a result of Jack Anderson, the Pentagon Papers. And as a, res as a result of that, they agreed to ban weather warfare in 1978. However, they never made a way for us to catch somebody doing it. Okay, Jim, at this point, what I'd like to do, because we we could continue on forever here, is um, I would, because I want to refer everybody back to your site, is let's talk about you. You had Graves' disease, hyperthyroidism. You were ill. You had to find your way back from it, from all these toxicities. Dr. Klinghart, who I feature in Poison in the Skies for a brief bit, talks about some of the ways we can chelate these metals out of our body. Let's go there for a moment. Well, sure. Um, I was diagnosed with uh, Graves' disease in 2009, and my thyroid swole pretty significantly. Um, I dropped from 160 pounds to 125 pretty rapidly, and, um, <clears throat> you know, it was suffering pretty severely. And just recently, um, in the last year, they had talked about removing my thyroid. When I went to the weather modification conference last year, I had bought a new shirt, you know, to go um, with my suit and I had my neck measured and everything. So it fit properly. And after I got off the airplane, my neck swole <laughs> from a fume event, which is called aerotoxic syndrome. 
um, for those who aren't familiar with that. And, you know, me having a suppressed immune system, it just made it worse. I couldn't even button the top button on my shirt. And, you know, when I got back from the weather modification conference, which completely stressed me out and stress and hyperthyroid are very interrelated. Um, I went to the ER because I felt like I couldn't breathe. I was having panic attacks. I went to my endocrinologist, told him about all this. And I just thought that my hyperthyroid had got the better of me. And I was like, just take it out. And, you know, I told people online, look, I probably won't be able to speak for a while because I'm going to be having this surgery. And that's when all hell broke loose in the comment section and the emails and, um, you know, urging me to find a better way. And um, I did. Um, a great book I got uh, by Medical Medium on how to cure um, Graves' disease, Hashimoto's, and hyperthyroidism um, talks about um, the Epstein-Barr virus and how it feeds on metals and other you know factors um, that I had never considered. So it took a drastic change in my diet um, in actually dealing with my stress level. Um, Wi-Fi and EMF play a major role in this as well. Um, you know, before I was constantly on my cell phone, um, my house is now completely wired. We don't use the wireless. We don't have cordless phones. Um, when I use my cell phone, I, I use it very sparingly. Um, and I have blue light filters on my computers. Most people aren't even aware that blue light can affect your um, health. But, I, you know, all of these combined um, basically made it to where, you know, I have for the last six months um, to nine months uh, had perfect thyroid levels. Um, my endocrinologist, my family practitioner could not believe the numbers when they saw them. Um, you can see videos of me from a year ago and I looked skinny and half dead. Um, whereas now, you know, I'm back to normal me. I've been off of methimazole and any of the Graves disease medicines, um, since then. And, you know, I do it through diet and, you know, I just common sense stuff, you know, dealing with my EMF issues, dealing with my diet, dealing with my stress. Um, this is really important, which you just brought up. <clears throat> Excuse me, I coughed for a second there. And that is that EMFs interact with these metals in our body. This is really important. And um, we can talk about that another time. But it, like you said, there's no one thing. It all goes together. So getting these metals out of our body is really important. Um, any final advice you'd like to give people on that before we go to your legislative kind of action that you're looking at right now? Well, well um, antioxidants and, and zeolites, um, zeolites being uh, pretty much volcanic ash, Fiji water being one of the best, um, lots of documentation in clinical journals um, about the ability for our zeolites to you know, remove metals from the bodies. I've heard suggestions of chelation therapy. For me, it's just too damn creepy. So, uh, you know, that's just my personal choice. You may enjoy chelation. Um, I 
you know, generally try to do everything naturally. I avoid doctor's offices like the plague. Um, but that's in my sign. I was born in the year of the dragon and it's clearly stated that we only go seek medical attention when we're damn near dead. I'm Um, with you on that one. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, and grounding yourself is, is a very important part. Um, you can look up grounding, um, online and just put in EMF grounding health effects and you can read all the studies. They literally took a group of 60 individuals and another group of 60 individuals. Um, both were exposed to, you know, high levels of, you know, EMF radiation. One group went outside barefoot, stood on, in, you know, semi-moist sand, and the other group didn't. And then they took thermal images of the two. And you can literally see with your naked eye, you know, the from these images that the electricity that built up in their bodies left their bodies. Interesting. So that's, that's, that's how you deal with EMF. Um, you know, you can't avoid this stuff nowadays, but you can limit putting it to your skin. Yes. Use your, use your speakerphone. Using a, a wired um, headphones, it, it's just as bad as if you had it up to your um, phone, you, up to your ear, um, because basically the most of the headphones are used as antennas. Um, in fact, many of the, the phones will say, if you want to use the FM radio, you have to plug your headphones in because we use the headphones as the antenna for that. So, Truly. And, the, you know, there are a couple other, um, one of them, I, I love this one technology called FLFE or Focus Life Force Energy. And what it does is it knocks down the jaggediness and the spectrum of the EMF energy um, that's been shown now to be true. So there are all kinds of technologies coming up that can start ameliorating it. But I think you're right. It has to start first with the choices we make in our own behaviors. So just let's hop on for a moment to um, what you're planning to do and introduce legislatively uh, that can start turning this around relatively rapidly if we just kind of stop kicking the atmosphere. Yeah, so, and and I've thought about this for 10 years now, and, you know, I've been, I I don't want to put forward a solution. Before I say this, if you're watching somebody online, and they claim to be an activist, and they're not offering you a solution, then they are not an activist. Um, They're an infotainer. And they probably are a fear porn infotainer and have very you know grandiose, spectacular um, titles that will draw you in and get you to like and subscribe and donate. And you know, I just don't do that. I could do that. I could scare the hell out of everybody and make a lot of money. But the point I'm trying to do to make here is that um, we need a, a solution that's grounded in reality. And the reality is, bands do not work. Um, they banned nuclear explosions, Kim Jong-un setting off nuclear bombs. Uh, they banned weather warfare. It is likely happening today. So what my solution is called the Environmental Modification Accountability Act. It's at climateviewer.com slash nmod. That's E-N-M-O-D, climateviewer.com slash nmod is to tack on to the, the existing weather warfare ban of 1978 two things. 
a worldwide requirement for people to give prior notification before atmospheric experimentation. So that way, if they're going to do cloud seeding, if they're going to shoot sounding rockets off, if they're going to try to steer some lightning bolts, that they need to give the public notice at a minimum of 48 hours in advance. But more likely, the larger the experiment, the larger the time frame um, beforehand that they should give public notice. So people can have time to say, hey, I don't want this or I object. Um, but at a very minimum, you know, because cloud seeding is on a, you know, very short term basis. Hey, the clouds and the conditions are right. You got to make it work for every type of experiment that they're doing. But basically, transparency up front. Tell us what you're doing, why you're doing it, when you're doing it beforehand, so that if you hurt people, if you destroy their property, you can be held accountable in a court of law. Um, and if you are don't tell us and we catch you, then we can assume you are hostile and you just violated the Environmental Modification Convention or the Weather Warfare Ban of 1978. So the only way to even be able to make that law have teeth is if we can determine the intent of the individual. And the only way to do that is to require up front, you tell us your intent. Mm -hmm. And anybody who didn't tell us your intent, we're going to assume that you were being hostile. So how do you find the people who were not, you know, being honest and telling up front, you do that with sensors. So we have to greatly increase the number of sensors, atmospheric sensors. Um, and I propose a two-part solution to that. That one be by the governments, universities, and corporations around the world that have all the billions of dollars and the satellites and all of that stuff. That they create an international monitoring system similar to what happened when they banned nuclear explosions. Um, they have seismographs, they have infrasound recorders, they can tell when a nuclear bomb goes off. That they do the same thing for weather modification and geoengineering, rogue geoengineering. But in addition to that, that we create a climate viewer for your backyard, that, that we have a citizen-powered network of atmospheric observation um, sensors around the world that can't be cut off by the government. Because just like when Fukushima happened, they cut off the EPA radiation network, RADnet. Um, because they didn't want the public to see the amount of cesium and uh, radioactive iodine that was floating over America. So they just shut it off. And that's unacceptable. So we have to have a backup plan. And that backup plan is a citizen-powered network. And what I foresee, and I hope to build one day, is a climate viewer for your backyard that has a camera pointed at the sky, that webcam it's called an all-sky camera. It shows the entire sky all at once, that it collects rainfall samples and does spectroscopy on them or spectrometry on them where it can tell you these are the chemicals that are in your rainfall, that it has electromagnetic field monitoring so that if somebody is using something like an ionospheric heater or directed energy weapon from space to steer a tornado or that we have something able to monitor that you, you basically a weather station plus camera rainfall sensor and you know emf sensor because these 
are not accounted for anywhere. Right. Uh, there are very few of these kinds of stations anywhere in the world. I talked to um, the guys at UCAR, um, the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research, and they are the top college or corporation in the world for weather modification there in Boulder, Colorado. And they were building um, do-it-yourself weather stations for third world countries. And I said, what about rainfall samples? And the two individuals behind the counter kind of looked at each other like, you know, like, are you serious? And I'm like, yes, because this isn't a thing. There isn't a data set. And we should know what's falling out of the sky, don't you think? Yeah. And they both were just awestruck. <laughs> and I could see the gears turning. Um, but if we had this kind of data set, you know, then we could tell, hey, there is a ton of silver iodide fly, you know, falling in this area. Yes, we've got lots of aluminum and barium in this area, um, but yeah. we don't have that. So that's my those solution. Tests, those tests have been done privately, and I know of a couple of them, and what they found when they were taking essentially snowfall over an area that had aerosolization. And so to have this done more upfront and with us available to that day. I get people sending them to me all the time. Exactly. There I you mean, go. you know, people send them to me, and they're like, yeah. I had this uh, snow pixie uh, test by Elemental Analysis, Inc., in Lexington, Kentucky, and right. you know uh, the aluminum was nine ninety four parts per billion, or parts per million. I mean, the the problem is, you know, like there are so many people trying to do this, you know, just on a local level, yeah. and you know, you you don't have a standard. That's mm -hmm. why no scientist is going to take it seriously because how did you collect your sample? You know, was, you know, who, who did the test? Do we accept their, you know, the scientific community, a bunch of very anal people. And what we would need is calibrated sensors. They're all the same so that we can tell, you know, and they're, and they're calibrated every so often to make sure they're accurate. But yeah, it's a very complicated issue trying to solve um, secret government, weather modification, weather warfare, um, it is almost certainly happening, um, but we have to start somewhere, and my somewhere is dealing with the weather warfare ban that's currently on the books and demanding transparency and accountability. So I think that's a good start, and that yes. if people are more aware as a result of that transparency, then they'll have the choice. Do, do we approve of this kind of thing, or do we want to push back? And I tend to believe that there will be more pushback and outrage once we get the transparency part that, you know, more people are aware this is even a thing. And my work won't be you in know, mine and other people like me. Our work won't be so hard convincing the public that this is a real thing. Absolutely, Jim. And I want to thank you so much for the incredible amount of research you've done to also take the word chemtrail now out of the fringes and out of solely conspiracy theory and take it to where it belongs a much larger audience because it's a much larger project uh, than even the chemtrail conspiracists have believed to this point so you you've 
you're you're a warrior. You're a real warrior. I applaud what you do, and I'd like to support you in any way I can. And I, and I'd like to suggest anyone watching this go to your site, which is climateviewer.com, and support your work so you can continue this effort. And uh, we'll follow you along the way and help you out where we can. I appreciate that. And and I didn't even mention my third website, which is climateviewer.org, where you can see all of this mapped out. So. Um, I have a 3D mapping website. It's called Climate Viewer 3D. And you can actually see every single ionospheric heater on the planet, um, yeah. 440 nuclear reactors, 2,615 nuclear explosions, um, every NSA facility on the planet from the Five Eyes, the under, undersea cables that they use to spy on you. Um, I focus on pollution privacy and propaganda because the three are related if you're going to talk about pollution you're going to have your privacy violated and they're going to make propaganda about you so you better be ready buckle your seatbelt if you want to sit in these shoes and get on youtube and try to make a difference um because they're going to try to destroy your reputation they're going to invade your privacy it is a hard road to hoe but um you know, I've got thick skin and, you know, an elastic heart. So, and now a healthy thyroid too. <laughs> and, and, and now a healthy thyroid too. So, um, I'm, you know, focusing on taking mixed martial arts with my nine-year-old daughter right now to further that, you know, to cement my health recovery in place. So, um, I'm looking forward to that as well. Jim, thank you again so much for your time. I heard uh, it sounds like your wife and the kids came back. You, you had everybody out of the house for a little bit, and we went over our little time slot. So I heard the kids in the background here and there. So yeah. I'll let you go on to your family. Uh, thank you again for your time, and uh, I wish you nothing but the best in this journey. And Regina, I greatly appreciate you giving me this opportunity to, to speak my truth and try to tell the other side of the story. Um, you know, the truth is scarier than fiction. So if you're addicted to fear porn, hey, there, there's a lot to be scared of. Um, but at least you'll be armed with the facts and knowing is half the battle. And like I say at the end of every video I do, attack ideas, not people. Um, talking about shooting down planes or hanging the people that work for these heart facilities is not helpful, fruitful. It will never, ever change the world. You're going to you never doubt that a small group of individuals can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that has. So get educated, educate others, and bring awareness to the solution. I'm going to try to push to make that a reality, and hopefully we can turn the ship around. Indeed. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, too. Again, everybody, um, go to Jim's website. Um, well, he's already mentioned three of them. Uh, the primary one is climateviewer.com and start searching from there. Uh, you can spend weeks, if not months, um, delving into this information and starting to share it in a really meaningful way with the people around you. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on reginameredith.com. <laughs>